so Mark chapter 9. Um, and uh, I've entitled uh, this uh, talk, uh, Tolerance and Partnership. Tolerance and Partnership. Now, uh, the book of Mark, uh, uh, I think uh, a pastor spoke last week on uh, the same, uh, you know, the same book, from the same book rather. But we see that uh, after the transfiguration, uh, Jesus starts his journey from uh, uh, where he was and he was headed towards Jerusalem where he would be crucified. In Mark chapter 9 verse 30, he foretells his death. He says he would be handed over and he would be crucified. And the disciples found this a very hard pill to swallow because after all, he was meant to be a Messiah, which meant the anointed one, which meant a savior. And the modern day equivalent is uh, the superheroes or the Avengers who are supposed to be the last people standing. So it didn't make sense that he was going to die and he was predicting his own death. So firstly, it says they didn't understand, but they were even afraid to ask. Just in case it was true, why would he die? Uh, in verse 33 of Mark, um, we see that he now keeps his mission private. He doesn't want anybody to know that he's in Galilee because this is a private moment where he's teaching his disciples about self-denial and servanthood. And he's now traveling through Galilee towards Jerusalem. It's exclusive time. He's teaching them about leadership and it is a time for uh, professional development in this area for his disciples. And uh, when they reach Capernaum, uh, they are in the house, and uh, he asks them, what were you talking about? Because they were bickering and arguing as they were walking on the way, and they go quiet. Why? They were ashamed. At a time when Christ was telling them that he would be crucified, and he would go to the cross, a shameful death. All they could talk about was, who is the greatest? So when he says, what were you talking about? Nobody piped up. They were ashamed because how could they talk about who's the greatest at such a time? But Jesus deals with them gently. In a rabbinical way, he sits down. It was a moment to teach them. And it is said that he dealt with them, well, he dealt with them gently. He didn't come with a heavy hand upon them, but he begins to teach them and says, the recipe for success is if you want to be the greatest, then you should choose to be last, okay? He just blows apart everything that we know about being the greatest, okay? Uh, you should choose to be last. Spiritual greatness comes by service to others at home, in the workplace, and in church. Now, in this context, the disciple uh, who, who was loved by Christ, John, one of the 
the sons of thunder, who was quite impulsive, <laughs> well, probably, pipes up and says, teacher, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we told them to stop because he was not one of them, one of us, rather. And we are going to today uh, concentrate uh, on this little passage from verse 38 to verse 41. We told them to stop because they are not one of us. Now, we are not told who this person who was casting out demons was, okay? But we get an idea that there were more people than just the 12 who were doing God's work. In Luke chapter 10, verse 1, after the Lord appointed the 12, it is said that he called 72 others, okay? And he sent them out and he said, go and, uh, you know, preach the gospel. Go, he sent them two by two to different towns to preach the gospel. But they also had power to heal. So it could have been one of the 72. But in Mark chapter 5, uh, there, was a, there was a man who, who was called Legion. Uh, this man lived in, the, lived in the tombs who was so strong nobody could restrain him <clears throat> because he was possessed. And Christ healed this man. And when he healed this man, the man pleaded with Christ, with Jesus, he, because he wanted to go with him. He wanted to go with him. But Jesus said no. Go back to your home and talk to your family. He literally talk to your brothers, talk to, talk to everybody in your neighborhood what the Lord has done for you. Okay? So this man goes out and he's you know, speaking about the work of Christ. Needless to say, there were probably more people like this man who were healed and were probably performing uh, you know, some, some miracles. Now, this man, nonetheless, is, you know, uh, casting out demons. And John wasn't impressed with that, and he told him to stop. Please observe that he was not trying to cast out demons. He was actually succeeding at what he was doing, okay? What happens next? He stopped him. Now, why did John stop him all? Chapter 11 when the Israelites were fed up of eating manna, they said manna again, Keith Green, okay, those of you who are my age, there was a, a singer called Keith Green, and he sang a song about manna, manna again, uh, and, and they, were, they were unimpressed, the Israelites were unimpressed, uh, and uh, they grumbled, and they murmured, and uh, they said, Is it, we want some meat, Okay, and they started thinking about Egypt and what they ate. And Moses then said, complaining to God, why did you put the burden of all these people on me? Where can I get meat for all these people? And God said, bring 70 elders. And Moses did that. And the 70 elders were empowered by the Spirit. Okay? And they started prophesying. Why were they empowered? Because God wanted them to share the burden of, you know, you know looking after all these people with, with Moses. He wanted this spread out, and they prophesied. 
but there were two elders who remained in camp. They were not part of the people who had gone in the, to the tent of meetings. And where they were, they were also empowered and they started prophesying. Okay? Now, Joshua, who was Moses' faithful intern, heard this and he wasn't impressed at all. Okay? So he ran and found Moses and he said, my Lord, stop them. They are doing this, okay? And Moses said, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all of God's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit on them. I wish that all of God's people were prophets and the Lord would put his spirit on them. So Joshua sees competition and wants to be exclusive, but Moses sees potential help administering and ministering to the people of God, and he said, don't stop them. But the other time was when John was with his disciples, and Jesus was on the other side with his disciples, and they decided to baptize. So Christ, Jesus started baptizing. And John's disciples were not impressed, and they said, and, and they, they don't even call him by name, they said, that man who was with you, <laughs> on the other side of the Jordan, okay? He is baptizing, and here's the exaggeration, and everyone is going to him, okay? But the Bible says that there were a lot of people being baptized by John, but it says he is baptizing, and everyone is going to, the, to him, okay? Referring to Jesus, John said, I am not the Messiah, but I was sent ahead of him but he also said he must be greater and I must become less he must be greater and I must become less so you see that this spirit of competitiveness spirit of jealousy is not a one-off uh, when Mark mentions this but rather it has repeated itself number of times now what did Jesus say what does Jesus say to uh, to Mark. He says, do not stop him. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next minute say anything bad about me. And in verse 41, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will not lose their reward. Now, there's an emphasis of doing something in Jesus' name. What does this mean? Okay. Is this the end of a prayer? That's the way we commonly use it. And it is not wrong to say in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer. It is okay. <coughs> but, saying <coughs> but saying Jesus in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer is not necessarily the same as praying in Jesus' name. Okay. Does that make sense? Saying in Jesus' name at the end of a prayer, which is totally okay, is not the same as praying in Jesus' name. Okay. But also, saying in Jesus' name is not simply a magical formula, okay, that if we say in Jesus' name, then it's open sesame and things will happen. Just that phrase does not make things happen at all. 
What is doing something in Jesus' name, therefore? What does this mean? From my gleaning, it means, one, we believe that Jesus has the power to effect whatever we want to happen. Jesus has the power to effect or to put into action whatever we want to happen. So we believe that he is God, that he is almighty, that he can do what we ask of him. But secondly, it means that whoever is saying in Jesus' name is empowered to act as an agent on behalf of Jesus by invoking Jesus' name, okay? It's as though somebody gives you power of attorney. They themselves cannot do something, and you go and do it in their name. It means that it's not you doing it. You have no, you know, you have no power to do that. But by invoking that name, you get the power to make things happen. So you are empowered to act as an urgent on behalf of Jesus, or you have authority, but just because Jesus Christ has given you the authority. But thirdly, it means that the action you take is in accordance with God's will and that you glorify God rather than glorify yourself. Okay? So three things, and there are probably more. You believe Jesus has the power. Jesus is God. Jesus is almighty. And Jesus will make it happen. Secondly, you are empowered to act as an agent by invoking Jesus' name. Okay? And thirdly, the action you take will bring glory to God. Okay? The action you take will bring glory to God. Okay? And that is what I understand by in Jesus' name. And we go through that because Christ says, you know, Christ says that anyone who does this in my name, okay, you, you should not stop him because he did it in, in my name. So, it doesn't matter if a person is in my camp or in your camp or in another camp. It only matters that a, a person, okay, is either belongs to me or does, or does not belong to me. And that's the, word, the words of Christ. It only matters whether the person is for me or against me. Okay. So verse 40, verse 41 rather, this does not only apply to doing remarkable things like miracles, okay, which John wanted to stop, but even the most menial tasks that we do on a daily basis. And so verse 40 says, anyone who gives you a cup of water, where, how? In my name. Anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name, because you belong to the Messiah, will not lose their reward. So all the small deeds that we do in Jesus' name, as we are pro, you know, propagating and helping the agenda of God, okay, your reward will not be forgotten, okay? Anything you do in Jesus' name, you know, your reward will not be forgotten, even if it's giving somebody a cup of water. In this case, specifically, giving one of the disciples 
a cup of water, they will not lose their rewards. Now, there's a verse which says here, for whoever is not against us is for us, okay? For whoever is not against us is for us. It's a verse that has been debated. What does it mean, okay? I think this should be read in conjunction with another verse in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, which says, for whoever is not with me is against me, okay? So the first verse we read is in Mark chapter 9, verse 40. For whoever is not against us is for us. Matthew chapter 12, verse 30 says, For whoever is not with me is against me. Is that a contradiction? No, it's not. But what does it mean? It just means that there's no middle ground. Okay, there's no middle ground. Okay, so you are either left or right. You can't hang out somewhere and say, you know, I'll abstain, okay? So you're either for one side or the other. And this is a sobering thought, dear friends, that indifference is really not an option, okay? You can't hide in indifference. You need to make it, you need to decide you're either for Christ or you're against him. You're either part of the kingdom or you're out of the kingdom. For whoever is not against us, is for us. Whoever is not with me is against me. No indifference, uh, no middle ground, and you know, need to you need to uh, you know decide where you belong. Now, how does this apply to us? How does all this apply to us? I'd like to teach you a bit of medicine today, and we'll talk about. Autoimmune diseases, okay. Uh, anybody heard the term autoimmune diseases? Yes, okay, it's become very, very common. What are autoimmune diseases? One of the most common autoimmune diseases we know is lupus, systemic lupus erythematosus. A common autoimmune diseases that I deal with is Guillain-Barre syndrome. Anybody heard of that term? It's, it's something that affects your nerves. And when it affects your nerves, people become progressively weak. So it's called ascending paralysis. It can be fatal. Now we have good treatments, but it can easily be fatal very quickly because it affects breathing. Why am I talking about autoimmune diseases? Okay. Auto means self. And what has it got to do with anything? The cells which defend us sometimes are unable to tell the difference between the body's own cells and the foreign cells. Now, the cells that defend us, the protective mechanism, are supposed to be released when there's an urgent attacking a virus or a bacteria, and they deal with the problem and sort out the problem. But sometimes, the immune system goes haywire. It means that it doesn't tell apart, so it deals with the problem but those cells also start attacking the body. And in lupus, it attacks multiple organs. In Guillain-Barre syndrome, it attacks the nerves and the person becomes paralyzed. Okay. How, what's the importance of that? Okay. The importance of that is that we are at a time where 
and this is not a peculiar time, it's been happening in historical times, we're at a time where we are not only being attacked from outside, in fact, what's happening more peculiarly is that Christians are going at each other's necks, okay? The Christian immune system has gone berserk, okay? And Christians are not able to recognize who are Christians. Why? Because to recognize who are Christians, we're looking at who is part of our tribe or who comes to Limerick Baptist Church. Or, and okay, this is the, the slippery ground, who, who baptizes in what way, okay? Or who believes in predestination, okay? And I'll talk about those just now, okay? We'll conclude soon, don't worry. I want to tell you about a little pamphlet by, uh, uh, by Martin, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones called Who is an Evangelical? Okay, it's unfortunately out of print at the moment, but uh, uh, a person called Matt, uh, Kevin DeYoung uh, did a summary, an article on this. Okay, and Martin Lloyd-Jones asked, who is an evangelical? And uh, one of the answers he puts is that, well, we need to define ourselves clearly. But the first danger is to be too narrow-minded, too rigid, and too detailed in definition. Okay, Too narrow, too rigid, and too detailed in definition. And he divides uh, doctrine into two things. And he says, there's the essential the, the marrow, we can't survive without that. But there's also the non-essential. Some of the things he defines as non-essential, and I'll leave it up to the elders to, to redefine it for us here. But one of the things Martin Lloyd-Jones defined as non-essential is baptism. And he says, baptism, well, baptism itself is important, but the things that divide people in Christian denominations is the edge and the mode of baptism, okay? And it's divided, okay? So uh, I look forward, I've written some of these questions. I look forward, I can see that on that day, uh, Baptists and Presbyterians will be in this queue trying to find out from God who was right, okay? <laughs> <laughs> who did it right? Okay, and, and we wait with curiosity. But secondly, predest predestination Predestination, it's something that has divided a lot of people. Calvinism, Arminianism, who's right? Now, uh, you know, Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the argument here is about the mechanism of salvation rather than the way of salvation. And the important bit is the way of salvation. How do we get to God? And everybody is agreed on that. But we come to the mechanism and everybody's at each, other, at each other's throats about. But also things, okay, there are others. You get, I think you get the point. So there are a lot of things which are non-essential or maybe deemed as non-essential which divide us. And that's when we, okay. Now, um, I think I've skipped a page. You'll be very happy to know. I'll be very, I'll be very quick, I promise. Um, 
we have multiple Christian denominations because of differences in interpretation um, about some aspects of God's word. We need to define ourselves and our doctrine, but we need to figure out what's essential and what's non-essential. It is true that we should ensure that we are clear about fundamentals and the gospel of Christ. Sadly, uh, Christian churches become intolerant of those who don't pray like they pray, who don't baptize like they don't baptize, who don't preach like they preach many different things. Most of what separates us is non-essential issues, and these are sadly magnified. I think it's Wesley who was, who was saying, if you get into an argument, he says, never raise your voice. He, he, he had a whole treatise about how you argue with somebody. And we like to magnify this, but we need to go back to the fundamentals of disagreeing without confrontation. Okay. Like an autoimmune disease, we are attacking each other. Now, during my Christian Union days, I learned in college, I, lot of, I learned a lot from people who I previously feared. Okay. I learned a lot from people who I previously feared. And I can give anything to go back to those brilliant days. Christian friends from many denominations. Um, let's move from tunnel vision to broad vision. From building unnecessary walls to going through the channels which were created when Christ broke the dividing wall of hostility. Let's avoid exclusivity and embrace the spirit of tolerance with open arms to all God's people. Let's rejoice when Christ's name is glorified. Ephesians 2 verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and broken, destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Let us pray. Eternal God,